So this evening I wanted to talk about uh, two things. One is what I call the War on Emotion, which is a public lecture that I've given probably 20 times now around the country in my work in substance abuse and mental health, and sort of this idea that as a culture and a society, we've essentially declared a war against emotion in really unpleasant mind states, and we've kind of created this attitude that if we're having an emotional experience, it's difficult that somehow we're doing something wrong, and we need to fix it, to medicate it, to do something about it, which is insanely unhelpful. And also the, the outcome of that is what we call often a spiritual bypass, which is a term that has made its way into sort of the Dharma world a little bit in the last maybe five years or so. Um, and so the, the, those two are actually pretty well connected. And the, the, really the first thing that I want to say is when I say spiritual bypass, I'm not saying in, in, in any derogatory way. Like nobody gets into Dharma practice with the idea of like, I'm going to create a spiritual bypass so I don't have to deal with my shit. Like nobody, maybe some people do, but I don't think anybody gets into this with that intention. And so a spiritual bypass essentially is any time we're either consciously or unconsciously using meditative tools or Dharma practices as some kind of strategy to kind of avoid dealing with some aspect of our experience. So the delusion that if I practiced well and I got good at this business, that somehow something inside of me that's been troubling me for a while will like sort of go away. Does that make sense? And, you know, to some degree, we're all doing it a little bit anyway. Anybody who says that they're not, um, they're, they're beyond spiritual bypass is probably inside of a really big one. Um, and so it's this way in which we, you know, a lot of times it's guided by, by confusion or delusion or denial in just a sense of that we think that there's something about this practice that's going to lead us into some place where something about our experience that we don't want to feel, recognize, deal with, where it sort of magically go away. And that becomes kind of our motivation for practice. Which is really sort of the opposite of why we would practice in the first place. So we're trying to bypass something by developing, for lack of a better word, spiritual tools. I don't like the word spiritual. Um, but I'm not going to talk about that. And the reason this is on my mind for a couple things is, A, I've been ins insanely guilty of this. Um, I've used meditation techniques, not intentionally, but for many years I was using Dharma techniques, practices, to essentially avoid... For me, the main thing was I, I got really good at avoiding the emotion of sadness. And I, I think I avoided sadness for maybe seven or eight years. Um, pretty successfully. But it created some side effects that were probably more destructive than dealing with the sadness in the first place. And actually this topic makes me a little bit angry. I was um, teaching a retreat with George Haas back in October at uh, 1440, which is a sort of secular retreat center in Santa Cruz. And we got invited to this, uh, Gabor Mate was actually teaching a retreat there at the same time as us, and 1440 invited us to go see a lecture 
by Gabor Mate and a meditation teacher that I never heard of before called Adyashanti. Does anybody know Adyashanti? Guy's a kook. <laughs> I'll tell you why. So they're doing. So the topic was spiritual bypass. So I'm like Adyashanti, meditation master, Gabor Mate, spiritual bypass. I'm like, this is going to be killer. So me and George go to this lecture. And Gabor Mate asks him a few questions. And one of the, key, the questions he asked him, he said, how is it, Adyashanti, how is it, that we have all these enlightened and awakened spiritual teachers over the years, these somewhat enlightened, really spiritually advanced people who do these horrible behaviors? These advanced Buddhist teachers who have this great wisdom and knowledge of the nature of the universe, and they are uh, sexually abusing students, and they're engaging in all of this kind of really kind of criminal, horrible like behavior. Like, how is that possible? And he said that um, uh, he, I could, you could tell he didn't particularly like that Gabor asked him that question, so he was a little bit awkward. And he said, well, he said some people. Um, can be very, very spiritually advanced and very, very awakened and very, very liberated on one level. And on another level, they can be very, very, um, you know, harmful. And I have to say that I completely and totally reject that idea. I do not see in any realistic universe where somebody could be spiritually advanced or highly awakened, enlightened, and actually cause people that level of harm at the same time. I completely reject that idea. That actually, there's something else going on there that is very, very highly problematic. And to even say, like, even like, I don't want to name names, but, you know, we, we, we have a lot of this happen go on, you know, Trungpa Rinpoche, and a lot of these people are like, oh, they were a really, really wonderful teacher, and he was fully awakened, and like, dude, he was like sexually abusing his students for like 20 years. Like, you cannot call him an awakened, awakened, deliberated person. You have to stop doing that. Obviously, he was actually not very liberated. If we look at the progression of Dharma in its most basic form, we have Sila, Samadhi, Panya. There's no way you can have bad, bad Sila and be very, very awakened at the same time. Those cannot both happen at the same time. If you don't have, seal is like basic 101. Be generous, be kind, don't hurt people. You know, if you can't get that together, the rest of it, I'm sorry, is just complete bullshit and total delusion. So me and George were up to like three in the morning. <laughs> the best thing about teaching retreat with George Haas is you get to hang out with George Haas and talk late into the night. We, are, we didn't make any money on retreat. There were like five people there. They all went to the damn Adi Ashanti Gabor Mate retreat. But I got to hang out with George Haas for five days, which was great. And so this really kind of got us thinking about this. Like, and of course, I wanted to totally, I raised my hand. I didn't, they didn't give me the mic, luckily, for probably everybody, including myself. But it really got me thinking about this. You know, like, you know, wisdom without sila is actually no wisdom at all. Wisdom without sila is actually total delusion. And I think that we just really have to be careful about the way that this... And so ironically, they were doing a talk about spiritual bypass, and that actually was a really, really great example of what I would consider a spiritual bypass. 
that somebody has bypassed their basic you know, ethical level of humanity in exchange for some like highfalutin enlightenment awakened concept. You know. So that's kind of a, a, an extreme example of, of how that plays out. And then it brings us back to really, I think, core Dharma 101, which is really seal up. You know, don't harm people. You know, be kind, be as harmless as you possibly can. Pay attention to your body. And I think what happens, and this is, I think, part of the culture, and I, I don't mean to blame any, I don't think this is anybody's fault, I think this is just how it happened, but if we kind of go into history class for a minute, we have, you know, the, the 60s, we have the hippie generation, we have the Vietnam War, we have a lot of really confusion and suffering and, and a change of generation there, and lots of turmoil from that era, we all know that. And then we have this kind of delusional, disenfranchised folks of the 70s who started to come into contact with Buddhism. You know, we have the inside crowd, Joseph and Jack and Sharon, who brought the practices over in the Theravadan tradition and started IMS and practicing like that. And in Colorado, where I live, a lot of Tibetan uh, Buddhist centers were developed, Trungpa Rinpoche, a lot of that stuff. And I think what happened is people heard this idea of enlightenment. And it's almost like the same thing when we think of existential philosophy, like the whole God is dead thing after World War II, of all the horrible shit that happened in World War II, we had the arising of existential philosophy to kind of make sense of all that. And at the same time, we had this, this kind of craving for enlightenment and the delusion that Buddhist practice somehow led us to a place that was above our humanity. That somehow enlightenment, full awakening, is a sort of disconnection from my humanity where I no longer have unpleasant thoughts, I no longer have unpleasant feelings, I certainly don't have any difficult emotions anymore. Everything is just kind of fucking cake from here on out. You know, and this great delusion that I think we're all guilty of, I know I have been, this delusion that plagues my mind constantly, that if I practice well and I really commit myself, that at some point there's going to be some event in my practice. Something's going to happen, there's going to be some event, and everything on the other side of that event is going to be cake. It's going to be easy for me from now on. And I just really don't think that that's the case. I think actually probably the opposite is true. Which really brings me to this emotion business, which has been the greatest source of my curiosity probably most of my life, as much as I didn't know that. And the problem, I think, with emotion to some degree when we start looking at Dharma and we look at contemporary society and things like science, which is pretty trustworthy, it turns out, um, is that early Buddhism, and really Buddhism in general, but specifically early Buddhism, Theravada, Pali discourses, there's no term that means really anything close to what we understand as emotion in the current world uh, of science, of evolution, of emotional science. There's just not a term that means anything like that. So there's something gets lost in translation there. We have this term chitta that you might know which is usually the translation for mind or heart-mind, which is where we see in the third foundation of mindfulness in Satipatthana, which is really just telling us to be aware of the presence and absence of greed, hatred, and delusion, which is not a very complex. Um, and that's really sort of what we get. 
And so we don't have the terminology for that. And if, if I'm honest, uh, it's pretty easy for me to admit with pretty a large degree of accuracy that the, the primary source of my suffering throughout my life up until the present moment is emotional. I do, like, me and my mind are pretty good, I, you know, cognitively, I, I, there's a lot of stuff going on in my mind I'm not particularly, I'm not particularly happy about, but we're pretty good. Uh, my body, pretty good. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, I do pretty good with there. But emotion, when I become emotional, uh, I suffer. That most of my suffering is really in this emotional domain, whether it's sadness, sadness I don't want to feel, Sadness I didn't feel for the 10,000 moments I should have felt it previously that's just accumulating on the other side of the door of denial. And so, you know, again, we've declared a kind of war against emotion in our culture that we think if we meditate right, we won't have to deal with emotion. If we can get the right quotient of like uh, Jack Daniels cocaine and marijuana we won't have to feel emotion uh, if we get in the right relation we have all these strategies to kind of basically manage emotion whether we need food, Netflix I mean the world is just a buffet of strategies to not have to deal with your emotion none of them have any success whatsoever but we really try don't we you know sincere attempt and so, of course, you know, the pharmacology is not the multi-billion dollar industry it is because of this phenomenon. And I think that we, one thing that I've noticed is, and, and one of the things that I've been doing in the last couple of years is I've been doing this training called Cultivating Emotional Balance, which is a sort of uh, developed by the Dalai Lama and a, and a lot of the world scientists and meditators to try to be like, yeah, like, you're going to really at some point have to deal with your emotions. And so when we look at, uh, so practice, uh, a lot of times what we start to do in practice is we'll unconsciously develop techniques, like the, the one that I loved. When you notice your mind wander, go back to your breath. Which, you know, you've heard this instruction before. I actually use that a lot of the time to, to, to actually not deal with my emotion. I'm like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, going, I, I'm not going there. I'll just conveniently discharge my attention from that experience. <clears throat> and one of the things that I think, so there's a couple things about it that I think are very important. One is, is there's, a, there's a lot of humility I've noticed in coming to terms with, with our emotional life. And in, in the science side of it, which I think is, I actually believe is the more trustworthy side of the Conversation. I trust the science of emotion much more than I trust actually Dharma perspective on emotion. Because there just doesn't really seem to be much of a framework for that. But, you know, of course, and emotion researchers don't agree and it's a heated debate. But there's a lot of evidence and it's probably most likely the case that uh, emotion came to us through evolution. So emotions are really in our somatic body, they're in our nervous system. We inherited them for evolutionary purposes. There's evidence to suggest, and most people agree, that there are universal emotions that we all have. We all have sadness, we all have anger, we all have fear, we all have joy, we all have contempt, we all have disgust, and we all have shame. Every human being on the planet has all of those emotions, whether you like it or not. 
And if you think that you don't have one of those emotions on the list, it probably means you're not familiar with it. Which probably means when it arises, you do something to not have to feel it. And again, I don't mean this to be derogatory in any way, because a lot of times I hear this and I go, great, now I'm doing that wrong. But really to try to give us a framework for, um, you know, a lot of what we talk about in practice is turning towards and turning towards and return to return towards. Um, and really I think a lot of it is having to come to terms with uh, the emotional life. And a lot of that, and of course we know mindfulness, we always talk about present time awareness, present time awareness, just live in the moment, just live in the moment. But, you know, there's no present moment, right? You got that. Have you noticed? I have been practicing for a long time and I have yet to find this thing called the present moment. I don't believe such a moment exists. It's more like present movement. And a lot of what's happening in the present moment is, you know, and this is conditionality, this is dependent origination, this is classic dharma philosophy, that a lot of what's happening, actually a majority of what's happening in the present moment is dictated and influenced by all of the previous moments, also known as karma. So all of the previous moments I've had in my life, all of the conditions of those moments create what's happening in the present moment. Because we can get into this massive delusion that the present moment is some kind of clean slate experience. Right? Like present moment awareness, dharma practice, all this shit that happened in the past doesn't even matter. Bullshit. It's all the experiences in the present moment that created the conditions for the one that you're in. And one thing about emotion that's very problematic is emotion as a function, as a function of our physiology, doesn't know anything about time. Emotion has no time stamp. Emotion doesn't know how old you are. It doesn't know that some of the most difficult, painful experiences of your life were 25 years ago. As far as the emotion is concerned, it happened five minutes ago. Have you ever gotten really angry about something that happened more than a decade ago? Walking around the street, minding your own business. Oh, you, like, you see something that reminds you of some dude in high school who used to beat you up. You're like, I fucking hate that guy. <laughs> 10 years ago. You think that was 10 years ago? That was not 10 years ago. That's right now. Dharma really doesn't do time very well. And so a lot of what's happening in our experience, a lot of our emotional influence and our imprinting are all these experiences that we've had. A lot of them are painful experiences that have happened in the past and we make a kind of imprint on that experience. And anything that reminds us of that, that emotion arises in the present moment. Have you ever been become emotional and thought to yourself, this emotion that I'm feeling is not appropriate for the moment that I'm in. <laughs> it makes no sense that I would feel this way right now about what's happening. All of the current information that I get in my external experience and what I'm feeling internally are completely polarized. There's no reason for any of this. So not only does emotion not have any time, it also doesn't care about logic and reason whatsoever. It doesn't have that as part of its it's not built into the system at all. <laughs> Have you ever been really confused around emotional experience? Why do I feel like this? I always feel like this. This always happens. 
Why am I a person who has an emotion? I asked this uh, Buddhist monk one time who I sat with for a month, Ajahn Suchita, who I think is the most liberated person I've ever been around. And we were talking about dukkha and dukkha dukkha and emotion. And, and I was just like, yeah, there's just like this baseline dissatisfaction that I, that I can't seem to get around. Like, and I was just like, well, you know, what do you do? Like, why do I have that? What do I do about it? You know, and he laughed at me. He's got this big mouth full of crooked teeth. So when he laughs, he like, he's a huge guy. It looks like he could be like in a Guy Ritchie gangster movie. And he's got this huge mouth of crooked teeth and he always laughs really loud. And he goes, well, David, he's like, you were stupid enough to be born again into a human body. I was like, that's it? He's like, laughing. He's like, ha ha. He's like, you stupid person to be born again into a human body. I was like, that's the fucking teaching? <laughs> and I was like, it was so refreshing. I was like, I was like all this forgiveness kind of fell out. I was like, oh, it's totally not my... I, I'm totally, my equipment is faulty. I was born into faulty equipment. Has nothing to do with me whatsoever. And I think that analogy works really, really well. It's like we, you know, we have like, you know, in, in kind of artificial intelligence and cognitive science, one of the lenses they do that they tie to contemplative science or contemplative neuroscience is like the analogy of computers of like, as human beings, we have hardware, which emotion is part of the hardware, which you can do nothing about. But then we also have software. Right? So our meditation practices, our insight practices, our mental cultivation, all of this stuff is really our software programming, which can make living in the janky equipment a little bit easier. You can download new software, but you can't go get a new hard drive. You're just... Sorry, kids, you're just, it's just how it is. So when we kind of think about working with emotions contemplatively, we, I think it's really actually helpful to see it in this way. Of like, okay, because we get confused. We think we can replace the hardware if we got good at running the software program better. Right? But actually, I think the software program is just there to help us better deal with and manage you know, the, 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 what's in our bones and what's in our nervous system and what's in our, the flesh of our being is not going to pain in the body, as we all know. It's, you know, we can come to terms with the pain in the body, I think, a lot easier than we can with around, with around emotion. Like many of us can accept, yeah, the body gets old, it gets sick, it gets dies, I, I break my leg, I, I have physical pain, I get that, I have a varying degree of, of acceptance around that. I think a lot of us can do that relatively easily for the lens of the body, it's easier for us to kind of see the pain body. But with emotion, I think we're not able to apply the same kind of understanding. And that one thing about, about self, right, is that anytime I have an emotional pain, which is a lot more often than I would like to admit, there's always a lot of Dave Smith in the mix. There's always a lot of self involved in that pain. There's always a, a story. You know, there's actually a whole screenplay, frankly, around I'm a person who has a feeling, who had this experience, it was a bad experience. Why am I a person who had an experience that was a bad experience? 
Why do I have bad experiences? Why do they do this to me? How come this keeps happening? Oh my God, this always happens to me. Why am I a person who keeps having this experience and having this painful experience? I don't want to have this painful experience. What am I doing wrong? I must be doing something wrong. And they call historicization, the way in which we're constantly in the emotional episode and the emotional intensity, we can't but help kind of grind out this impulsive tendency to historicize what's happening. And that's a lot, of, that's a lot of suffering in that. If I look at the stories of suffering in my emotions, I'm always the lead character. It's always about me being a person who didn't get it right, who didn't get it right, who didn't get what they needed, who was betrayed, who was abandoned, who was misunderstood, who wasn't like, you know, it's always like that. And so when we think about these experiences, I think it, I've had to make a pretty big shift in my practice um, to actually kind of believe everything I'm saying right now is actually kind of like, it's probably, this is probably the more accurate framework actually, this is probably more likely the case. And I think there's a lot of benefit in that because A, one thing that I've noticed is as the more I practice and I hold this framework, the more actually one thing that happens I've noticed is you're, especially with meta practices and having more emotional empathy for myself, my implicit bias has actually decreased. You know, this implicit bias business where you come into contact with somebody and you just make all these assumptions about them though you've never met them before, you know nothing about them and you know where they're from and where they came from and what a jerk they are and why they're like this. I love playing with implicit bias at the airport. Because when I go to the airport, I don't know any of the people in the airport, but I fucking know all the people in the airport. And I just, like, assassinate them one at a time. Look at this guy. He's probably working. He's just like, he's a Republican. It's just like, I'm just like, judge war. And then every once in a while, I'll let somebody off the hook. Somebody will walk by, some lady will walk by, and I'll be like, yeah, I got nothing. <laughs> I guess you're cool. You know, somebody always, like, every tenth person kind of gets a pass. <laughs> you know, it's never the dude in a suit, I can tell you that much. Like, I usually get the, the worst of it all. But really, a lot of times when we think about empathy and we think about emotion from this kind of universal, universality, that emotions are universal and we all have them. The, the, the ability to have empathy and to have compassion and to really kind of like, my, I, just have, I just give people the benefit of the doubt a little bit more now. Instead of like blaming or judging or like uh, assassinating their character, a lot of times I'm like, Gee, I wonder what happened to that person. You know, especially the difficult people. Is anybody familiar with difficult people? There's a segment of the, it's actually a fairly big segment of the population. <laughs> But a lot of times I, when, I, when I find myself, actually Jason, it was funny, and I was just complaining about somebody that I work with at my job who is a difficult person. And Jason pointed out to me, he's like, oh yeah, compassion. I was like, shut up, Jason. <laughs> and he was totally right. I was like, yeah, I, I, I have no compassion for this person. Instead of wondering, gee, I wonder what happened to them. I wonder what's been going on in their life that has put them in a position where they're acting like this rather than they're this difficult person who's doing something to me, you know, they're 
their life's experience has brought them to a place where being difficult is kind of their default mode. Like, oh man, I wonder what happened. And I think really when we start to think about uh, empathy or compassion, which are really comp- complex ideas, that when, we, when the more that I'm able, and this is a theory and I think it's true, the more able I am to access and to feel into my, emo- my own emotional experience, the more I am to hold your... If I can't hold my sadness, I certainly cannot hold yours. No way, Jose. That's never going to happen. And so the more I can hold and access my own emotional experience, the more I can be in that experience with somebody else. And then a difficult person becomes somebody actually maybe that I can be kind to or I can extend some compassion to. And the other thing about emotions, and I'll stop with this, is um, one thing that we really know from science is that you, and this is sort of bad news, I always like to end with the bad news, but uh, you can't selectively numb emotion, which is kind of the biggest bummer of the whole thing. You can't like pick and choose which ones you're gonna feel and which ones you're not gonna feel, which is mostly our game, right? I wanna feel joy and gratitude and happiness, I I wanna feel those ones, and I wanna not feel those ones. So the one thing about emotions that I do like is my life has been plagued by a tremendous sense of unfairness, which is a whole other Dharma talk. <laughs> but that's my default attitude about life is that it's fucking inherently unfair, which I know is very childish and I'm doing my best to work with it. Um, but the emotional system is totally fair. It's totally fair system. If you can access, the more access you have to sadness, the more access you have to joy. If you can experience the emotion of sadness, the more you're able to do that, the actually more able you are to experience the emotion of joy. And they're both equally important. Uh, in the other, the other framework we have around emotion is we really, and if you, if you remember one thing that I say, please remember this, we have got to stop talking about emotions as negative and positive. That is a completely unhelpful framework. And, and the question becomes, in the emotional experience, do I have a constructive or a destructive relationship to my emotion? So what we really want to do is we want to be able to access all of the emotions, contempt and disgust and even shame, and be able to understand that emotion and be able to choose what I do as a result of that emotional experience. That's the best that we can actually do. And so, of course, in Dharma, we would call this skillful means. Right? And, of course, we know. Has anybody ever done or said anything that you regret when you were angry? Right? Is that most of our... And this is really why the Dalai Lama wanted to push this program. It's a really a secular program. Is that there's an argument in his theory is that most of the harm and the destruction and the violence that happens in the world happens because as a result of people's destructive emotion. That it's destructive anger, destructive shame, that the emotion becomes so unbearable that I actually have to harm somebody as a way to manage that. And that, it, it, that if people were able to, to work with their destructive emotions that, uh, you know, the world would be probably a better place for all of us. 
and so violence and then racism and sexism and war and all of the really tragedy that goes on in the world is to some degree a result of people's destructive emotion. So I have a little bit of time left. I don't want to talk the whole time. So I'm going to end there. Thank you for listening. I appreciate it and I will be